And they are specifically sponsoring um, the Laurie Austin plenary, which um, we're about to uh, hear. So I have the um, rather complex pleasure of introducing <laughs> Selena Bartlett, who uh, has one of those CVs that would take me about half an hour to give you in detail. But we do want a full out plenary, so um, I won't do it in too much detail. But um, what I can tell you is that um, she did her PhD studies uh, under Marie Smith um, with uh, some involvement of Peter Dodd as well, and that was at UQ. And then postdoctoral um, fellowship work at uh, the John Curtin School uh, in Canberra, um, and then back as a research scientist to UQ for a while, before then um, departing for the US for an extended uh, period of 12 years. Uh, she did some teaching in pharmacy uh, in the US, but um, for eight years she was director of the Ernst Gallo Clinic um, and Research Centre at UCSF, and she was involved in looking for or setting up a pipeline to discover drugs that could be helped in, um, in to alleviate alcohol addiction. Uh, she returned uh, in uh, 2012 um, to a professorial position, and also she was in Australia a Research Future Fellow. And um, she's currently uh, at, um, she's currently the group leader of Addiction, Neuroscience and Obesity at the Translational Research Institute, at the Institute for Health and Biomedical in Innovation, Brisbane, um, at the uh, Uni of Technology there. Now, um, she's most, if, if you came along to this very dynamic talk last night which she gave, which was great fun, and um, it was really good to see the public there, and they were extremely entertained and um, really well informed as well. It was a great um, effort of outreach, and we really thank you for that, so that was fantastic. Um, I now understand why you sort of stay fit. You're so active um, on stage and off stage. So, um, But she would like me to tell you, actually, and it came out last night, she has a podcast called Shining Mind where she's... Um, communicating the um, science of neuroplasticity and what that can mean for change in people's lives. And she's also the author of a number of books. Um, she's the CEO um, and founder of MIGFIT Australia. Um, so, and it really seems to be a passion, this idea of communicating the science of neuroplasticity, the possibility of change, um, and how we can all um, help ourselves by, interestingly, by more non-pharmacological <laughs> methods now, um, considering your background in pharmacy. So, and and recently as well, she's been, you know, she also does work um, with the police, looking at, um, you know, informing them about neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity, and um, the effect of adverse childhood experiences on people, and and how we can turn lives around. So, for someone who's really involved with the public as well, and putting their science into use, so I think there's no better representative. So um, please uh, give us your address. Thanks, um, so <laughs> Professor Selina Barker. Okay, well, thank you all for coming this morning at 8.30. My night ended at 11 o'clock last night, so um, at Africole in uh, Adelaide. It was fantastic, just saying. Um, I want to thank the Australian, Australasian Neuroscience Society for giving me this uh, honour and it's very humbling because it was totally, completely unexpected, um, especially as I see people from my past, like John Becker's up there from the John Curtin School, who are amazing neuroscientists that I was very fortunate to be trained with in Canberra those Friday afternoon. Eccles lectures followed by drinks was where I got my greatest neuroscience training and I watch all these pictures up there and think I know that person and that person. Um, so I'm a very, very fortunate person. I also want to thank the Chen Institute for sponsoring um, uh, this event. It's very, very important that we get all of this sponsorship and continue the traditions of really this amazing revolution that's taking place in neuroscience that I'm absolutely so grateful to be part of. 
So um, for people that don't know me, I was never going to be a neuroscientist. I'm a country girl from Nanango and I was actually a pharmacist and my father was a pharmacist. I grew up in a small country town in that pharmacy watching how it actually helped the community. We had everyone come in and they were always asking my parents questions and they were always helping them. And so when they retired from pharmacy, they had all these amazing letters from people of all the help that they gave. So that's how I became a pharmacist. And, but halfway through my honours degree in pharmacy, um, which I was writing about cough and cold medications using uh, logistic regression to try and understand this, this behaviour model that someone had come up with. And I know it's really riveting stuff. And um, because I was going to open pharmacies for women in Queensland because it didn't seem like anyone was doing that and that's how we could sustain it. But halfway through that uh, uh, honours program, my mother called me and she basically said to me, Selena, something's happened with your sister. So for the next three weeks, my mother and I were in a lockup facility with my sister at Walston Park in Brisbane. And her treatment was a straitjacket and an overdose of haloperidol. And she ended up catatonic at one point. And I'm just telling you that the only thing that had happened for her was that we didn't really understand what had happened to her. And so it was like a diagnosis of what it wasn't. And so they just threw out a it's not addiction, it's not bipolar, it's not this, it's not that, so they made it schizophrenia form. And it's because she basically said that she was hearing voices and she was having dysregulated behaviour um, for sure. But it just seemed to me during that point when I was sitting in that dark room, I mean people were naked walking around her, it was a mixed ward, this is really what it looked like. And this is 1989 in Brisbane, I know things have changed somewhat. So. Um, the thing that occurred to me uh, during that time was why people buy cough and cold medications in pharmacies seems pretty pointless. And it seems to me that we don't really know how the brain works. Because all she did was hear a few voices, that was it. And then the next minute she's stiff as a board sitting in this room where she couldn't move. So I decided to go back and I just want to dedicate my lecture today to my sister who's no longer with me because she took her life in 2006 because her medication was escalated to such the point where um, she was just not functional anymore. So um, thank you, Francesca, for becoming... That's why I'm a neuroscientist. I'm standing here today. That's why I have been on a mission travelling the world to understand how the brain works down to its pieces, build it back up and find what is underlying mental health and how can we disrupt the space. It really needs disruption, and that's coming from a very deep place of traveling the world and doing everything, really, which I'm going to tell you about. So, um, anyway, so how does a person that's studying cough and cold medications using surveys that, doesn't, that faints at the sight of blood go back and become a neuroscientist? And I'm very fortunate that I had amazing mentors that took me on. I couldn't use a pipette. I certainly couldn't do brain surgeries. In fact, um, I remember at one point, uh, I was doing my first brain surgery, Marie was showing me how to do it. I was sitting in this really dark, damp lab at the University of Queensland, because back then to do a binding assay, you had to go through five buildings at the University of Queensland, so you'd take your brain membranes from here to the ice machine and the biochemistry department to the filtering you know, apparatus and the harvester in, in another part of the university. That's how I did my binding assays. <laughs> Anyway, and during this surgery, basically, she got a phone call because her son had hit a brick wall in the preschool. So she had to leave halfway through the surgery. And I'm just like, oh my goodness. Um, okay, I guess I have to finish and work out how to do this on my own. So that was basically, it was like by fire. But by the end, we had to file our own cannulas and we'd, I'd spend the weekends basically um, cannulating like lots and lots of animals, basically. But, it was an amazing training. And then I was very fortunate to get a position as a postdoctoral fellow, fellow by, with Ian Hendry. And, and uh, there's a lot of history here and a lot of stories, but the bottom line is he was an amazing mentor because he had curiosity-driven research. And that is the basis of my life, and I'm so grateful for my training in Australia. You have no idea how grateful I am for that. I walked into his office, my, I'm really naive, no, nothing. And he says to me, see these, see these proteins in this gel, this gel meaning silver stain gel, not Kamasi stain gel, a silver stain gel. I want you to go and work out what all those proteins are. 
And because I'm really naive, I said, oh, that sounds great, okay, just, I'll, just let me to it. So fortunately for us, we had the Meldy Toff and we had Peter Milburn running an amazing protein chemistry lab underneath me that I eventually found, because that's what I'm good at, is seeking out people. Um, and so he helped me work out how to do that. And I presented these first findings at the Lawn Conference. Um, and basically, Phil Robinson, who you probably all know, came running up to me as this young postdoc presenting this in, on an abstract. And he said to me, can you really do that? And I said, yes, we got it working. I don't know how, but we did. And so basically, him and I started collaborating, um, doing that kind of work. And then Ian's main interest was in the retrograde, because he discovered retrograde axonal transport of NGF. And that's what he was famous for when he returned from Stanford to, to the John Curtin School. Now, so if you know, if anyone knows Ian Hendry, it's quite an interesting time to be, you know, I was in his lab for quite a while. And, um, but he's, he was really amazing in the sense that I would walk into his office and I just read this paper in Science showing that if you inhibit, this is back in the 90s, mid 90s, I said, I said to him, look, this, they've just shown if you inhibit PI3 kinase in, uh, in PC12 cells, you can affect their survival. And obviously, we were studying the survival of neurons and trying to map the regulation, the molecular machinery that regulates the endosomal transport of NGF, right? Because that's Ian's main interest. And, he said, and I said to him, look, there's this drug we can buy called Wartmanin, which you probably all heard of back in the day. Not very specific, but as far as we knew it was back then. And I said to him, can we just get that drug in? Because he, he was an amazing technician. Um, and I said, can we just put that into the nerve terminals and see if we can affect the transport of NGF? And he said, what a bloody stupid idea, Selena. And I went, okay, no worries. Just throwing it out there. Anyway, and that's the beauty of Ian. He would go home to his farm, which is a winery. He'd think about it. And then he'd come back the next day and say, oh, actually, how about you order that drug and let's just see what happens. And it's on you if it doesn't work. And I'm like, no worries, great. So that led to um, that experiment actually opened up a doorway that led to an amazingly prolific time for us. We ended up publishing a lot of papers. This, we were joined by an amazing PhD student, Anna Reynolds, who's back. She ended up winning a CJ Martin Fellowship. And Ian had this amazing capacity to actually study, like we could do sciatic nerve ligations, but we had this amazing way to look in vivo at retrograde axonal transport. And he had this crazy uh, hypothesis, and none of us ever believed them, but we had to work on them. And now some of those ideas he had are actually coming true, of course. Um, and so what we end up doing was mapping the molecular machinery that regulates the endosomal transport of NGF from the nerve terminal back to the cell body. And also he was working on this G protein called G GZ where he was developing a knockout. Anyway, so the three of us together, um, we end up becoming quite an amazing machine. And, um, and I'm very proud of that time because what Ian taught me that I'll always be so grateful for is you publish all your data black, white, grey, even though we didn't come up with great stories that make cell and science and nature, we published what we got. And that made me such a curious scientist. It made me love science. It made me trust in science. And I say that because uh, for lots of reasons. So I became very, I ended up having a baby in 97 and then a second child, I was pregnant. And I was sitting in my office, at, off my little corridor office um, and I was, I became very enamored with this work of Mark von Sastro at the University of California, San Francisco. And you probably, this is like old hat for you guys now, but basically back in the day, this was really novel. The, the discovery of, gene, of GFP and being able to tag GPCRs and being able to actually in, real, in a real way visualize what was going on inside a cell. And we just couldn't do that at the time. We were like black box stuff. Um, you know, using drugs and then measuring radioactivity and all of these kind of things. But I wanted to really see what was going on inside the cell. So as you do, I moved to California uh, with two kids, uh, well, with a three-year-old and a four-month-old baby. And I was very fortunate not to get a job with Mark von Sastro, but someone he trained called Jennifer Whistler. I'm not presenting any of that data, but within a very short space of time, 
I was basically looking at dopamine, D1 and D2 receptor, uh, recycling and degradation and what drives that. I had a million experiments going because I couldn't believe you could buy an antibody and get it the next day. And all of this stuff, it was like, and then I had, like my bench was covered in experiments because I just couldn't do that in Australia. It would take weeks to get something and by the time it got there, you'd lost interest kind of thing. But anyway, so at the Ernest Gallo Clinic and Research Centre, um, Ernest Gallo was an amazing person in the sense that he, he planted the first grapes in, in America from France, and obviously he's a billionaire, and then his, he decided to set up in 1982 an alcohol addiction research center, and his lawyer was like, you are not allowed to do that, that's just crazy. Anyway, so he said, no, I'm going to do it, and he said at that time, because they had alcoholism in the family, obviously, so at the time, he said, everyone's studying the way alcohol affects the liver, and I'm telling you, my liver is not telling me to drink. And so he made it a very strong focus that we had, to, and that's why Ivan Diamond was the first research director, because his lab at San Francisco was the only lab studying the effects of alcohol on the brain. And so all of our research centered, like Antonello Bonci, Jennifer Whistler, Howard Fields, and all of these people that I worked with, we we're all dedicated to understanding the neuroscience of alcohol addiction. I was amazingly fortunate, because I'm telling you that when I, I, I had a lab next to Howard Fields' lab, and when I was young, his textbook was on my desk. You know, the, the, the thing about pain that he wrote. And I, and I end up living four doors from him as well. And I'm just like, how did this happen? You know, he was my idol, basically. That's a different story. Um, but anyway, so what happened was we had $150 million over five years from the state of Cali California because, you know, rich people never use their own money. Um, and we had to, but, but we, were pro we promised that we would develop treatments for alcohol addiction. We were generating amazing science. Anyway, and so what happened is the director of the research center rang me at my desk and said to me, can you come around for a second, we want to talk to you. And they said, we'll give you $1 million in one year uh, to come up with a treatment for alcohol addiction. And I was just like, and so they made me the director of medications development. I said yes, of course, because stupid, but anyway. Um, but then every year, our board, we had Ernest Gallo and we had Eric Kendall and Stan Prusner, and we had to present, one, our research findings every year, plus the treatments that we're developing for alcohol addiction because the funding depended on it. So that was every November, this meeting happened. And can you imagine how scary this kind of meeting was because they're not easy people. Like Stan Prusner is not the easiest person to present in front of, just saying. Um, anyway, so my folk, I went straight back to stopping mutating amino acids, which I love to do, and looking at how it regulated trafficking inside cells, to actually putting on my pharmacist hat back on and, and really narrowing down a pipeline of medications that I think and working with the principal investigators at the centre would be valuable targets for us to go after for alcohol addiction. So where did I first focus? Um, and that was on the observation of 25 years of research demonstrating that alcohol-dependent people also smoke, but smokers aren't necessarily dependent on alcohol. There was genetic, behavioural and pharmacological evidence for this. We could show nicotine could increase alcohol consumption. We could show you could block nicotinic receptors and reduce alcohol consumption. There were common genes. It just went on and on. And I'm thinking, why haven't we done anything to target nicotinic receptors for alcohol addiction? And the two main limitations for that were the drugs available. I mean, there's a strong neurobiology, like these receptors that nicotine targets are as you know, uh, pentameric ion channels made up of alpha and beta subunits, um, both our endogenous acetylcholine and nicotine target different aspects of this combination of ion channels. And these receptors in different combinations, whether alpha-4, beta-2 or alpha-7, expressed in all the addiction pathways of the brain, it just seems such a, an amazing target to me to go after. And um, what was limiting us in terms of translating this quickly into humans was the 
we just didn't have the pharmacological medication tools that cross the blood-brain barrier or that could pass through a clinical trial effectively. And the other thing that happened was the animal models at the time when I started this in 2004, we were studying social drinkers. So we were putting 10% sugar into the alcohol, fading out the sugar and then hoping to get the animals drinking. So all my animal models, because I was just using what was done, because I never did alcohol addiction up till this point, um, we were getting things like 0.8 grams per kg plus or minus 0.4 grams per kg and then we had to then modify that with a drug. Right, so I'm down in the noise. I'm like, I can't develop drugs like at this level. So um, I got very fortunate um, because I happened to have, and this is what happens, right? I happened to be di at dinner with Roy Wise, who's um, very well known in the alcohol. Well, he stopped doing alcohol in '74 because he's at NIDA and he was doing cocaine research. And I just said to him, "Look, Roy." Um, I'm having trouble here. I've got, I took on this job, but really, look what's happening here. So you, you can see that, you can look at here at what we were doing. You can see the huge error bars, and these are SEMs, not SD. Um, and um, I said, how am I meant to develop drugs if I can't even modify a signal? And then he said to me, oh, my animals used to drink alcohol in 1974. And I said to him, are you kidding me? Why aren't we using that model? And so he PDF'd me his 1974 papers, and then we started collaborating um, and we were able to replicate all of his work. Now this is a model that ended up being used across a lot of places after we published this again, even though he had already published it in 1974. Now what I want to point out here is it's the intermittent access that was driving the increase in drinking. There was no sugar, it was 20% ethanol. Who would have ever thought? Because we thought the alcohol was bitter. And then if you do it continuously, we didn't get the same effect. I, I point that out because that was hugely important for the next set of discoveries that we made. And, and at the same time, I gave a talk on my, I made these knock-in mice for the new opioid receptor, which I haven't shown you. And I was presenting that work at a Gordon conference in Boston. And this is this guy in my session, um, Jonathan Coe from Pfizer, was presenting his data, this is in 2004, on veranoclean, which is a drug called Chantix in America and Champix now marketed in Australia. And it wasn't FDA approved yet, but the data he presented during that meeting just blew my mind. And I had just accepted the job at the Gallo Center to develop medications. And I, afterwards I had a glass of wine with him and I said to him, can I please get that drug into my lab to test it for alcohol addiction and I was telling him about what we were doing and he said there's no way Pfizer's going to give you that drug and you're not going to dirty up their data with your alcohol studies. And so for the next uh, two years I basically um, uh, called him and, we, and him and uh, Hans Verlima, the three of us, end up collaborating um, for, you know, all, for about 10 years after this. So my lab was actually the first lab, the day it was FDA approved, I had the drug in my lab the next day. And six million people had already taken the drug. Now, why did I like it? Outside of being a nicotine cessation drug, it was not metabolized by the liver. And that was a big deal for people drinking. Um, and it's so it's modified from a natural compound called cytosine, um, which is marketed as Tabex in Eastern Europe, used as a nicotine cessation drug. Now, obviously, a lot has been learnt about this drug since that time. At the time, there was a lot of um, optimism. I think that there's still some value in this drug. But for me, it was the first step into me coming up with a way to get an FDA. So I basically my, set up my pipeline in a way where we first started to repurpose FDA-approved medications. And then I was looking at all the targets that we had coming out of the Gallo Center, setting up collaborations with companies and other institutes and doing screening assays. I basically had a huge pipeline of about 14 different targets. And this was just the top one because it was FDA approved. And obviously, if we could hit two addictions with one drug, it was going to be very valuable. OK, so the bottom line is, obviously, we were able to show that. And the only reason that we got this to work, the only reason, is because of the animal model. So all my animal models involve animals drinking over a long period of time. And I've shown over and over and over again now, both in the US and back here in Australia, that unless you're doing it like that, you're really not targeting the appropriate therapeutic strategy because the, the targets, the proteins, the circuits, and you'll see this later, are all changing with time and from exposure to alcohol and then sugar, etc. 
But this was an amazing finding. We, we, we looked at both long-term um, alcohol consumption, but we also had an operant self-administration model going at the same time. So that was very exciting for us. Because it was FDA approved, we had a collaboration with Pfizer. I got NIH funding. From this point on, I ended up turning that million into $8 million in a very short space of time. And it was primarily driven, and still is, by this discovery. And working with Marcus Heilig, he was now the director at the NIAAA, who's both a doctor and a scientist. So he, he became really interested in it, and I managed to convince a lot of people to do small proof of concept human studies. Um, so we could take our animal research into humans in a very pretty fast timing, and that's because it was FDA approved. What you're seeing down here is a study we did at NIAAA with Vijay Ramachandi, where we could actually show that varanacline can reduce alcohol-induced activation of the reward pathway in the ventral striatum. Um, we went on to publish that in PNAS, but also show through Ray Litton's work at the NIAAA, he funded studies across five clinical sites to show varanacline could reduce drinking in humans. It's a very small response rate. Um, but that's because of the inter, and you'll see later why, but it's because of the inter-individual uh, variation in alcohol consumption and their responses to this particular drug. And then at the Gallo Centre, Howard Fields and Jenny Mitchell also, through, we, we got one of those stimulus grants in 2009, um, which was a combination, which you see T1, T2 and T3, you're hearing about it now, but we were fully in that um, between 2004 and 2010 through the NIH. And you can see basically that um, we got a significant effect of varanacline in those human studies. So what I did from that point on was I had, in each particular thing I was looking at, whether it was a Rexin or um, you name it, NK1 receptors, um, and all the thing, things like, I was working with Ulrike Hebeline, we, we translated very rapidly her findings in fruit flies, um, and I had a collaboration with a with a company that had a cancer therapeutic. So we managed to publish that in Cell because we could actually take a basic finding in a fly and move it into a human really rapidly through, through this kind of approach of looking for, because of my pharmacy background and looking at pharmacokinetics and all of these things, we could actually, and, and my ability to work in, you know, go and work, in company, you know, work with companies and do multi-investigator extensive collaborative type of approach, we were able to develop like a whole pipeline of therapeutics for alcohol addiction in, in about an eight year period. So I just want to point out here that there's differences in the way drugs interact depending on your model. And the modeling really matters big time. The reason I'm in alcohol addiction rather than schizophrenia is because I just didn't believe the animal models back when I started this in 2004, but at least with alcohol addiction, you can actually know what you're doing because you can see them drinking the alcohol and you can actually look at the changes in the brain and all of those kind of things. So on my return, I got recruited back, um, first of all, to the Florey, but I ended up going to QUT because um, my family's from Queensland and uh, they just built this, like I'm in the nicest place, in the, I'm in a hotel like for research. I've never been in a place like this in my whole life. It's absolutely glorious place to work. And uh, it was built, Chuck Feeney actually provided some of the funding, but we're integrated between clinicians and scientists, so they're trying to get us to work together, which I think is really, really valuable. And it's turned out to be incredibly valuable for our latest research. On my way back, I was sitting in my office and my collaborator at Stanford Research International calls me and we'd set up an experiment where um, we're trying to understand how are the nicotinic receptors changing in response to long-term alcohol consumption? Which parts of the brain are they changing in? Is the subunit combination changing? Like, can we come up with a better therapeutic than even varanacline because maybe it's alpha-3, beta-4 and not alpha-4, beta-2? And she's an expert, <coughs> Dr. Marika Quick, in uh, nicotinic receptor autoradiography. It's not easy to do, and, but she's just, a, she's, she's just an amazing scientist. So I was very lucky to set up a collaboration through one of my NIH grants with her. So what we did was we have the animals drinking alcohol for 12 weeks, but what do we have as a control? 
Uh, we had sugar as our control, and then we had another control where the animals were just drinking water. Anyway, so she calls me up because I'd moved back to Brisbane at this point, and she said to me, oh my God, Selene, you won't believe this, but the animals that are drinking sugar, the nicotinic receptors are changing in exactly, like the subunit combination, the increase and decrease is changing in exactly the same way, exactly the same way as alcohol and the stuff that I do for nicotine. So she's a nicotine researcher. And I was just like, no, that can't be true, no way, you know. And then at the same time, I'm thinking, thank God we had another control. Um, anyway, so my poor PhD student, when I arrived back, that was the first thing he got to do, and that's to replicate this work and then to go back and um, see if veranacline and other nicotine cessation drugs could actually reduce sugar consumption. And that's what you can see here, is that obviously we've published that since. And that's completely surprising. And so not only have we shown that uh, sugar can uh, be so sugar's basically changing the brain the same way alcohol and nicotine are. It's, it's probably, we don't know for sure, but it's probably stimulating the release of our endogenous acetylcholine, and then the veranoclean's working to reduce it that way. So, um, and this is the cytosine uh, tablet. So at the same time uh, that I was developing all these medications, I was really gung-ho really fixed mindset, totally narrowly focused. I just had to come up with a better one. I just had to understand the subunit combination better. I had to come up with a better target. That was my fo total focus. Um, Linda Wilbrick set up her lab next to mine and she was a postdoc with um, uh, Professor Michael Merzenich from UCSF and some other amazing people from Ginola Farms. And she's an amazing scientist. So she passes me in the corridor, because we used to have PI meetings every Monday morning, and we'd all present our data and talk and stuff like that. And after one of these meetings, I'm going back to my lab, and she passes me, she goes, Selena, do you really think that medications are the answer to everything? And I'm just like, well, kind of, um, being a pharmacist and all of that. And then she said to me, well, do you want to come up to my lab? I want to show you something. I said, sure. And so she takes me up there and she's doing two photon calcium imaging and she can open up the top part of the animal and she's got the animal on a treadmill. And then she can actually actively map an adult brain and then follows the changes in those synapses and then do electron microscopy to map exactly what those changes were at the same time. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And it didn't, still didn't really sink in until I returned to Australia. So then that whole concept of the power of neuroplasticity, no matter what age, really started to take hold in my own brain, in my own body, eventually. Um, and then I started to retool my research lab because then I started to ask questions. Okay, so how's the physical chemical structure of the brain changing in response to long-term alcohol consumption? And I was very fortunate when I returned to get funded um, by the NHMRC through collaborations with Peter Noakes and Mark Bellingham, who are excellent electrophysiologists, and I'm not. And so uh, we worked together, and I had this amazing postdoc who's now in the US. Uh, he was a PhD student in cardiovascular, and he became a neuroscientist um, working with us. And he was able to map these morphological changes in the prefrontal cortex, and at the same time, patch clamp and show that there are also functional changes in the same neurons. And that was really hard work and it took a lot of effort, but it was really um, amazing to see that how alcohol is actually changing the prefrontal cortex and also the amygdala and the nucleus accumbens um, in terms of functional activity. And when you start to see that and you see how extensive those changes are, then all of a sudden you, the light bulb goes off and you're like, Wow, so that's a massive change in the dendritic morphology. How many targets are changing there? So how am I potentially going to ever target one protein with such massive changes taking place? And obviously, because we've started working on sugar now and sugar being such an important role, playing an important role in obesity, we obviously did the same experiments for sugar and we went on to show that sugar is doing exactly the same thing as alcohol in terms of changing the structural properties of the nucleus accumbens and also the prefrontal cortex. So this led me to obesity because it felt like there was no one looking at the neuroscience and the brain changes related to the impact 
that sugar is one addictive and two can change the physical and chemical structure of the brain. The estimates are by 2025, 70 to 80% of Australians are going to be overweight and obese. The lion's share of this comes through fructose. So sucrose is obviously made up of glucose and fructose. Fructose in soda, sweets, but it's become embedded in the food chain, leads to effects on so many of our systems and leads to um, early diabetes and heart disease and all sorts of other things. And compared to, a, to alcohol addiction, obesity in Australia is, causes like much greater economic impact and it's growing. So I gave a talk in New Zealand last two weeks ago. I, I, they're trying to uh, introduce this tax on soda over there. And there's parts um, over there in the Pacific Islander community where people are getting like a drink called Stars. And that's, that drink has 32 teaspoons of sugar in it and kids are getting three a day. And New Zealand now has the, the um, largest dialysis hospital in the world. And it's related to overconsumption of sugar leading to kidney failure. And the kids are getting diabetes and really early onset diseases very, very young. So the World Health Organization recommendations for sugar are three teaspoons a day for children, six for women and nine for men. Coke has 24 teaspoons in it, just as an example. So as you can imagine, because I'm a bit slow, being from Nanango, um, I was running marathons when I came back to Australia because I got very unhealthy, I was stressed out, I didn't know it, uh, I was running a big lab trying to raise children and all of the rest, and I got back and I was really unhealthy and unfit, but I started, you know, trying to fit in, running again, and that kind of thing. And I just noticed for myself, N equals one anecdote evidence for the scientists in the room, um, that I was struggling to lose weight, even though I'd, I'd do a 19 kilometer run, but then I'd reward myself with sugar afterwards or whatever. And so all of this research is happening in my lab, and then it just kind of hit me, oh my God, I reward myself with sugar when I'm stressed out. So I actually started to take down sugar myself in my own life, and I actually got my waistline back again. And so it occurred to me that sugar, even though there's multiple causes of obesity, has hidden properties. It's far more than the calories. So as I alluded to, it's fructose. The hidden properties are that fructose can bind, uh, not bind itself, but can activate the hypothalamus. It can lead to us never feeling full when we eat. It inhibits the release of ghrelin and, and leptin, um, and uh, this has been well known and, and studied. And so this leads to uh, things like us um, not being able to resist overeating other food. I know that sounds um, funny, but that's kind of what happened to me personally, but also what I see in people. Um, it's not just 100 calories, the sugar. The sugar has an impact on the brain and the body that leads to a much greater impact in terms of how it changes the body and the brain. So for instance, fructose, um, the energy from fructose, from that one can of soda, for example, the body can't handle the energy. So because we're a homostatic device, it has a great way of doing that, and that's through the adipocytes, which are in visceral, cell, visceral fat cells. And we're just not meant to have visceral fat cells like we do. And that's because um, it takes up, it's like a gas chamber, it takes in the energy and then they multiply like cancer cells. And once you have these and you lose weight, you never get rid of the number, you can shrink them. And then when you regain weight, which the majority of people do on a diet within one year, um, then they're there sitting there waiting and then and they can actually get worse. So you can see why sugar has such an impact in the development of obesity such that if you're working out like I was, and then you reward yourself with a frappuccino, basically those um, few calories end up meaning that you need to work out 10 more times than you realize um, after that. So rewarding yourself with a frappuccino is not a very good idea. So the American Heart Association, which started this whole problem in the first place in 1968 by telling us that fat's really bad for you, so therefore they replaced fat with sugar, so now low-fat strawberry yogurt is like having a can of Coke, um, which is really annoying. But anyway, that's the way we go. We go in circles because we like to do that. Um, this is kind of the recommendation just for your own information, but also I think this is a public health thing. 
that we need to take care of. Just look at this, um, look at the amount of sugar in just one of these drinks. This is just for raising um, knowledge. So therefore we started um, the Australian Sugar Study um, about two years ago now because I think that, like everything, we need to raise awareness because one, I was not aware of how much sugar I was eating and two, it's such a public health crisis that we need to change the way we're thinking about it. Like, do you even know how much sugar you're eating every day? Without understanding that and knowing it's changing your brain and your body, we can't really drive change. So that's kind of what this is all about. Okay, so back to um, looking at mental health. So I think you would all agree in this room that we've spent a long time, we've published millions of papers, but people are still in the same mental health crisis that they were 50 years ago in some sense. We haven't really changed the landscape dramatically, in my view. Okay, we might be more socially accepting of telling people that you have anxiety, depression, um, schizophrenia. We have much more support around it with Beyond Blue and the Black Dot, and I'm so grateful for all of these people for driving the public health message. But from neuroscience perspective, from our role in what we say we're being funded to do, I, would, I think you wouldn't argue with me too much that we're not doing a really great job. So this is where I turn to the fact that I immerse myself in the work of Dr. Ander and Folletti from the Kaiser Permanente and CDC, who are now retired. But they started a weight loss study in 1985. Um, and during that weight loss study, what they discovered was as people, because in America, the infrastructure in the hospitals had to change. It's even a bigger problem over there, so to speak. And basically, as people started to lose weight, they dropped out of the study and, and they went up to them and said, why are you dropping out? You're being so successful. And basically, these people said to them, now you're asking me to deal with my trauma. And the doctors stepped back and they're like, what are you talking about? So they reframed the study and they call it the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. And it's an a, you get an ACE score, basically. And each of us in this room and everyone has one. And um, the bottom line is people use alcohol as medication. So I was actually developing medication for a medication, um, which has value, but it's not going to solve the problem. So the problem is that most things, alcohol addiction, sugar addiction, depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, bipolar, can all be traced back to multi-generational trauma um, and how that's wired the brain. So the bottom line is we now know that we're not born a blank slate that basically through genetics, epigenetics and microRNAs and non-coding RNAs and everything else we're about to discover means that we come into this world pre-wired. So we don't even know where we even inherited a lot of things. And that's what their studies show. Basically, the higher your ACE score, the greater the chances you have of becoming susceptible to developing alcoholism. And it makes a lot of sense if you actually go and ask the people too why they're drinking. So, there's no doubt that we're born with a blank, that we're born with a genetic blueprint, that uh, alcoholism can be explained by 60% through our genetics. We know that ep through epigenetics that those gene expression profiles are, are modified by how that brain is growing in utero and then how it grows in its family home and through adoption studies and many other things. So all of these things play a role. Just in science this year, they demonstrated through microRNAs that actually diet-induced obesity coming from the sperm can modify three generations going forward the chances of becoming obese later in life. So this is the study that they set up. Now, I, I really want to emphasize how important this is from an ANS perspective, from a uh, neuroscience perspective in the mental health space, because this is the underlying cause. So if we, if we keep treating the symptoms and understanding how all of that affects the outcome, we're not gonna make a long-term change. This is where the heart of it really sits. And um, this work has been done for 25 years. It's been replicated all around the world. The really hardest thing to reconcile is the fact that they're really simple questions. You just answer 10 questions, you get a one. If it's a yes to the question, you get the score of one and otherwise it's zero. You end up with a score between zero and 10. These are some of the questions they ask. Um, you can go to a website and look at this up. I'm not gonna go through it. But just to show you, when you see a graph like that, and these are all, all college educated people that had healthcare in America in Kaiser Permanente. 
and look at the ACE scores and the susceptibility to developing alcoholism. Now, it's not just their study that showed that. So this was not in, even in people in Richmond in California that are in extreme poverty, growing up with drug violence and really extreme trauma. They weren't included in this study. Um, you can see this for IV drug use in women. They've shown 78% of IV drug use in women is attributable to childhood experiences, but very specifically sexual abuse, um, for example. Um, I can show you the same thing for depression, and I can go on and show you the same thing for obesity, but because we're in such an amazing revolution in neuroscience where we can actually now see inside the brain, that's just an, an example here of extreme trauma and how it affects the development of the brain and how the brain signals. Basically, you can see the red on the right with a healthy brain versus extreme trauma on the left with a decrease in the red signaling, decrease in brain activity, basically primarily in the prefrontal cortex and also in the uh, amygdala area where they get an increase in activity. Um, and it's all dependent on um, basically adverse childhood experiences. So you can imagine for me, as a neuroscientist that's been studying the brain for 25 years, really heavily devoted to developing drugs, meeting someone that's in neuroplasticity, meeting Andrew and Folletti and understanding all of this work and then following, I really immersed myself in this deeply um, when I returned to Australia. And as neuroscientists, you know how plastic the brain is. You're studying it every day. Um, for example, I know in Antonello Bonci's lab up in the lab above me, he would give one, the people in his lab would do one injection of cocaine and see a change in the brain for up to six months. And, and we know that, right? So that means, can you imagine if you're growing up in a home that's very traumatic, how that's going to affect your brain development? And this is what this study shows. So, and this is uh, one of the slides for obesity. Obesity is really primarily, is really heavily driven by adverse childhood experience. And the other thing I just learned, which I had no idea about, was that anorexia, because we're working in a, developing a farm stay residential, the first in Australia on the Sunshine Coast, the government's just committed $70 million. And it's a wraparound, it involves doctors, psychologists, farm animals, growing, um, growing vegetables, etc., in a holistic approach to eating disorders. It's the first in, in Australia. Um, anyway, what, we dis what I've discovered too, working with uh, or meeting with people with eating disorders, specifically anorexia, where people are starving themselves, I didn't know that that was also to reduce the traumatic memories. I had no idea. I really did not think that it would be the case. I knew it for obesity, but I did not know that for anorexia. So what I learnt is that people starve themselves because it actually stops the traumatic memories from coming forward from childhood. Now, isn't that something to really think about? So, therefore, I then, obviously, because I'm in this, and I'm really interested in schizophrenia, unfortunately, I didn't help my sister at all. Um, but what I know now, I probably could have helped a little bit more. And if you look at these studies, like, this is pretty, uh, pretty amazing, um, looking at childhood adversities and the risk of psychosis, and it's a meta-analysis. And basically, there's 2,000 psychotic patients versus 2,000 non-psychotic patients, and basically showing significant association between adversity and psychosis across all of these different research designs. Um, and then the, the following study um, asking, what, is there a common neuro, neurobiological substrate underpinning this? And um, this was published in 2015. This is now 15,000 individuals across six diverse diagnostic groups. And um, what they end up showing, that's the beauty of brain imaging, is that they are able to show that um, there's deficits in, the prefrontal, in different parts of the prefrontal cortex um, involved in executive function and decision making, which makes complete sense, right? Because you get this dysregulation and, and problems with hygiene and not being able to instigate um, all of the things that we can instigate on a daily basis to keep our life together. So, so this led me to um, retooling my lab. I still do medications development because I know it has a place. I still, and I can see genetic engineering coming for, for non-coding RNAs. I know people working on that. And I can also, so I can see the advantages of all these great technologies coming. But there's also the concept of neuroplasticity and that's the ability of the brain to change. So we can change it 
easily negatively, because that's what it does, but we can also drive change um, in the brain with appropriate training. Um, and I worked with Michael Merzenich and a num number of people in this field, and actually practitioners also. So I've been out in the field working with people that are actually using neuroplasticity type training that rebuilds working memory, um, processing speed, focus and attention. And Michael is the first person to do an FDA approved trial in schizophrenia using his Brain HQ platform. So this is work from Linda, who had set up my lab, had set up her lab next to mine, but now she's a professor at UC Berkeley. And what she's looking at here is how she could reduce cocaine um, addiction by using brain training in animals. And what you can see here, if you look at the green arrows versus the blue, blue arrows, she's actually in real time looking at the changes in synapses that are either, either reef, like forming from scratch or actually decreasing and changing in response to the training that she's doing in these animals that have been cocaine addicted. And this is the beauty of ACEs science and neuroplasticity, and it's the beauty of knowledge. Like, when you understand something, it makes everything so much easier, right? So, the question I ask all of you, uh, and I think this is really important if you really care about helping people, can we reboot neurogenesis can we understand at the molecular level what are the drivers for neuroplasticity for brains that have been totally in deficit from trauma and adverse childhood experiences? So we, we've been doing this with um, Dr. Arnold Belmer, and I know Fatima's here too um, from my research lab, and I'm very lucky because they're really talented. And he demonstrated that this drug marketed in Japan as an anti-anxiety drug, tendusperone, was able to pre prevent the deficit from alcohol on, on um, new neuron formation or neurogenesis. So that's some work that we just published um, a couple of years ago. And um, he's looking at proliferating cells and then looking at immature neurons. And the bottom line is he was able to demonstrate that this drug working via the 5-HT1A receptor could actually help prevent the deficit induced during alcohol withdrawal on the formation of new brain cells, which is what this um, image is demonstrating here. So I think that, that we have the possibility at looking at it at a molecular level. The problem I had, and I had Joan Holgate doing this for her PhD, is how do we model, how do we model adverse childhood experiences in animals so we can actually study it? You know, the shocking finding is we couldn't because we had the animals separated at birth, we had them separated from their siblings, but I can't get ethics approval to do to those animals what are being done to children. Now that's really something, isn't it? That when you understand that, it's just like outrageous, but that's really what's happening. So this is where I get to writing books, doing podcasts, teaching people about the power that they have inside themselves to make changes if they choose to, that we've never been taught that you, could, that you should train your brain. No one tells you that, and I think that's very important. I think that's part of my message in the public, is to teach people that they do have the power inside them. I did it for myself, and I know that it's more powerful than you understand. I can give you tons of extreme examples of people that have really applied it. And, but the basis of all of this, which is now to the non-pharmacological um, approach, is that it really is nutrition, exercise, water, and sleep that are the kind of the bottom of the Maslow's hierarchy in terms of brain health. And that's not what we want to hear, right? We want to hear that it's like targeting the 5-HT1B um, subunit of whatever that's going to be the driver that's going to make all of these changes. Um, the other uh, interesting thing is that uh, I didn't believe it <laughs> at all. Um, so I remember being at UCSF and I just thought it was all garbage. And it took three years um, for me to change my own mindset. <laughs> because that's how fixed I was, because I was a neuroscientist, as a neuropharmacologist, as a pharmacist, as medically trained, as trained by some of the best people in the world in neuroscience, and, I'm just, and I just didn't want to think that this is possible. So it's only taken me to do it for myself, but also to see it in my own research lab. The power here is huge, and unless we tap into this and do something about it, we're not going to change the mental health space in the short term at all. I really believe there's a middle way where we can marry together in a tapestry of personalized medicine because each of our brains in this room is so different. 
we had come in completely differently. Our wiring is so different that we have to be able to combine the latest in modern neuroscience, targeting these new proteins and understanding them, combined with genetic engineering. So I just work with someone that has spinal muscular atrophy, where they now have an antisense oligonucleotide approved by the FDA that's marketed in Australia for spinal muscular atrophy that's actually having an impact by giving it intrathecally to these kids that would normally die and now they're living longer. That just happened and, for, and like if you look at the cancer example, there's tons of these examples where they're using genetic engineering technology and because I'm an optimist and I'm probably way too optimistic because this is probably going to take 200 years, but anyway, I can imagine that we're going to have a genetic engineering um, solution to targeting those non-coding RNAs in utero so that we can actually help people start off in a better direction. I, I, I can see it coming. Um, so I've also moved into not in addition, we've developed mobile technologies where we're looking at sugar intake, but we're also trying to help people break the stress reward cycle. Um, because if you understand how adverse childhood experiences wire the brain such that we drive for rewards like um, high fat food and sugar and alcohol through the nucleus accumbens, the amygdala connection, that's really hardwired. So how do you actually help people break that going forward? It's not easy. So we built a game called Trace It, which we're developing and we're doing clinical trials using that um, at QUT. I started a podcast called Shining Mind because I think everyone needs to be, the beauty of people need to be shown into the world. And I interview people that have made extreme changes. So I have this amazing woman. Um, I only recently started it. I'm very proud of it because I, I love people. And I, love, I just love bringing the best out in people. And this woman who's one of the top head and neck cancer researchers in Queensland, um, has actually recently discovered, and Phil Robinson has a role in this, that she could inhibit using stematol dynamin and she could keep EGF receptors on the surface of tumours which now allow those expensive antibodies to be more effective which then extends people's lives. And she's just about, I don't know if it's been accepted yet, but very close to being accepted into cell. Now she came from the Highlands in Scotland and at one point, the lowest point in her life, she was addicted to heroin. And she ended up doing a PhD in Cambridge because she had extreme trauma in her family. Um, and she talks about this on the podcast. And she ended up doing a PhD in one of the top labs in Cambridge and then at Scripps and now she's in Queensland. So you, if you see what I'm saying, people have the capacity to make extensive, long-term, amazing changes. And, and this is a book I wrote for the general audience, which I know you're not interested in, but that's okay. So when, when we look at our neurons, the question now that I take forward that I'm curious to address and do, this is one of the neurons in our lab where we can fill them, we can fill the neurons, right, and look at them, you all know that. But you know, the, the interesting thing is we only know what we can see. There's so much we don't know. There's so much that we don't understand that has not been mapped yet. And this is the thing about being a scientist, we end up a bit closed-minded. And so we don't allow ourselves to look for things we don't know, or we refuse to see the things we don't want to see, which is so curious because scientists, you'd think we'd be really open-minded. Um, but what I'm trying to say here is some of these changes that people have to make are going to be in the things you actually can't see because new synapse formation is possible, completely possible, but you won't be able to see it until it's actually happened. So how do we drive, so, so I'm telling you, we know from multi-generations, we, multi we inherit trauma and stress, and it comes from a million years of evolution, right? Because you know the circuits look like mushrooms and plants and all of these other things. I don't need to tell you that, right? But the main job of the brain is survival. So therefore, how do we, change the trajectory of evolution using neuroplasticity because we're in a modern world, we're not back in the dark ages. And so how do we understand that at a molecular level? How do we engineer it genetically? How do we teach people about the power of neuroplasticity? How do we restore the brain that's been in deficit from long-term stress and substance abuse? And that's what I'm really interested in doing. I just want to thank you all for listening. This work was built off the back of a large number of people that I've worked with around the world. Some of them are here today, Fatima at the top there, thank you for being here and coming last night. Um, 
Dr. Arnold Belmer has been an amazing postdoc. He's now a level B person in my lab from Paris. Um, and uh, Paul Klonowski was instrumental in developing all of that morphological work with Peter Noakes and Mark Bellingham. Um, and then uh, I won't go through all the names, but I just wanted to mention them for people that are helping and working with me in recent times. Obviously, I've worked with a lot of people around the world, so, but anyway, thank you very much, and I'm very humbled by this ability to be able to talk about my work, so thank you.